Thank you, Bert and Mary. Great job as always. And good morning to all of you. And this rainy morning, could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah? Obadiah verse 1. We're pushing along through this book. Today we'll be in the first session noting verse 8 of Obadiah, and in the second session, Obadiah verse 9. And uh, in the first session, we'll be talking about the wisdom God in relation to the wisdom of men. And then in the second session, we'll be talking about the wrath of God, which will be poured out against Edom, and what is the wrath of God. So uh, that's what we'll be uh, doing here this morning, and uh, good to have you all with us. And uh, uh, we, um, we're going to uh, continue the study of Obadiah, and then we finished off uh, on Wednesday classes, we finished off the doctrine of canonicity. And uh, uh, this Wednesday we'll be starting a new doctrine, the doctrine of inspiration. So what I do on Wednesday nights is what I do between books for Winston Bible Ministries, which is to teach the various doctrines of the Christian faith. So... Uh, on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday classes in the future, we'll be doing inspiration, which is only going to be this, uh, seven lessons, and then inerrancy, and then we'll be talking about the history of the English Bible, and then we'll do a study on justification, sanctification, and our salvation. Also, the doctrine of prayer is going to be down the road in the Day of the Lord series, which is going to be good. And uh, so that's a preview of coming attractions. I get all that stuff ready to, uh, to go, and I've taught these things in the past, too. And uh, so, uh, um, good again, good to have you all with us, and uh, let's take that moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take this moment of silent prayer to ensure the fact that we're in fellowship with God, because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the, the members of the Trinity. And, uh, but God has given us, from His grace policy, First uh, John 1, 9, which states, if we confess our sins to the Father, he, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And uh, so we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which he's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So... If there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing, distracting to you, we always have problems in our lives. We're sinners. We live in the devil's world. Uh, we're sinners. People around us are sinners. We have problems and difficulties, and that's going to happen. So we just have to do what the Lord says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for another day, another day to experience and enjoy creation and in fellowship with you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit, and other like-minded believers that are part of this ministry. We just thank you for each and every person that is here uh, this morning, and we also like to thank you and praise you for your great plan from eternity past when you elected us and predestinated us to be conformed to the image of your Son. And that election and predestination manifested itself at our justification when we trusted in your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the work of your Son and the great love that he demonstrated toward us when he was crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at your right hand, 
giving us the victory over sin and Satan, delivering us from your wrath in the lake of fire. And we just thank you for the, this great love, and we thank you for the fact that your son uh, propitiated your justice and righteousness, which demanded that sin and sinners be judged. And we thank you for your love, providing a Savior, your son. And we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, from regeneration to resurrection. And we just pray that the Spirit would do a mighty work to all of us here this morning. You, there's nothing that uh, any of us can do to uh, understand and, uh, and put into practice your word without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I just pray, Father, that uh, you would help me today as the communicator to bring forth your full counsel with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people can receive their necessary spiritual nourishment. And, I know, and your word says when through Paul, when we're weak, we're strong, that your power is manifested in our human weakness. And for those of you people in the audience, whether they're sitting in front of me or listening to these broadcasts through the various websites and podcasts and media platforms you've given to us, that are weak, but remind them that they're strong. Your power is manifested in their human weakness. And to a certain extent, we're all weak, Father, and we just stand in our view plan that you could take us sinners and transform us into the image of your Son. So help me today to bring forth your full counsel with regards to this passage in Obadiah and your people to understand by the power of spirit and apply what they're being taught and to concentrate and to joy, enjoy and rejoice over what they're hearing with regards to your wisdom and your holiness and your wrath and your love and your mercy and your grace. So Father, we pray for the service in our great God and Savior Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Obadiah verse 1. Obadiah verse 1. And uh, as I said uh, before the opening prayer, we'll be looking at in the first session, Obadiah 8, which uh, will teach us that God will destroy Edom's wise men. So let's look at, uh, let's read the whole as we've been doing. Obadiah, like Jude, is only one chapter long. So uh, we'll, um, when we get to the bigger books, like if we go to Genesis or when we go to De uh, Daniel or Exodus, uh, obviously we, want, we won't be able to read the whole book, but whatever chapter or paragraph we're in, we'll uh, look at the whole paragraph before we look at whatever verse that we're working on. And uh, of course, with the, you know, for instance, uh, with Jude and Obadiah, we're able to go one verse at a time, but when we get to these big narratives like uh, Genesis or Daniel or Exodus, um, or, you know, we're, we're going to be taking paragraphs and chapters. We're not going to go verse by verse. But a lot of times with the, like Paul's epistles and John's epistles and Peter's, you know, you can take one verse at a time because there's uh, each proposition or command or prohibition or request is, uh, you can, there's a message in it. But I always try to, uh, when we look at like verses 8 and 9 today, I try to look at these verses in the context in which they're found. So I never, when you see me teach here, I'm always, what well, we did this with Jude, or wherever you heard me teach before on Western Bible Ministries, I always try to always remind us of where we are when we look at these particular couple of verses. Because I, I want you to see not only the, the trees of the forest, the individual trees of the forest, but the whole forest as well. So Obadiah, and, this, it, and it would be analogous to Obadiah, the whole book of Obadiah being the forest, and eight, verses 8 and 9 are like the trees of the forest. So we like to look at the trees, and we look, look at them in detail, and then look at the, the big picture of the forest. So Obadiah, verse 1, it goes in the NIV, which is a great translation, by the way. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us 
us go against her for battle. We know nothing about Obadiah. It doesn't really matter. No, no, uh, like unlike the other prophets like Jeremiah, there's no other information about this guy. Uh, but we do know he was a, a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah uh, at, sometime after uh, the, the, the third and final invasion of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, where he uh, destroyed the temple. Uh, of Solomon and deported the people and uh, destroyed, uh, sacked the city of Jerusalem. And so he took the, the people into uh, exile for 70 years, according to Jeremiah's prophecy. So sometime after that third and final invasion, uh, Obadiah gets this vision. And as we pointed out, and we'll turn to it again, we've noted it already, uh, oh, Jeremiah 49, verses 7 to the, oh, I'd say about 23 of that chapter, is, sounds just like Obadiah. Uh, and that, so that tells us uh, Obadiah was a, a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was uh, a prophet that was around during these three invasions of uh, Nebuchadnezzar waged against uh, the southern kingdom of Judah in the 6th century BC. So the fact that Jeremiah gets the same vision and the same uh, vision as Obadiah would indicate that Obadiah also was a prophet that lived in the time of, uh, of uh, Jeremiah, which is quite interesting too because you think about uh, one of the great uh, groups of believers or you would call them a pivot back then or a remnant in Israel of faithful believers. What a tremendous group of individuals these were during this time. Obadiah, you had Jeremiah, you had Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you had Ezekiel. All these people were contemporaries of each other. And uh, they were tremendous men of God, and they suffered by association with the people who were being dis the nation was being disciplined by God, and they suffered by way of association. So the envoy here, as we pointed out in verse one, is a fallen angel. Uh, remember, Satan has got the rulership of the world. Uh, the whole world is in, under the power of the devil. First John five nineteen. He deceives the entire world. Revelation chapter twelve. And uh, Satan is the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So uh, the nations are under the authority of, of the devil, and uh, so therefore this would be an, an envoy from Satan's kingdom. Of course, they're all accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from the book of Job, for one, uh, for one book in particular. So then it says in verse 2, See, I will make you small, Edom, among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? And of course, he's talking, describing uh, the pride of the nation of Edom, which is the result of their, resulted in their downfall. And they had an, a, a pride in their, uh, their, their natural geographical location, which served as a natural deterrent for inviting, uh, invading armies because they lived in the mountainous regions of Edom, which is now really what we call Jordan today. And, uh, you know, you hear of uh, Petra, and, and we so, showed you pictures of that. So they had uh, imposing uh, geographical location, and so there were sometimes to get through to them, you had to go through narrow passages where you'd have a million-man army would have to go one guy at a time. Of course, they would be hiding up in the, in the rocks, and they would be, uh, they could uh, have, have a turkey shoot. So they didn't have to have a strong military. They have to be smart just using what they had, and they were. So then it says in verse 4, Though you soar like the eagle, uh, and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? All of them rhetorical questions that demand a, a, a positive response. Of course they would leave something behind. 
And then it says in verse 6, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures will be pillaged. So God's saying, okay, the, the thief and the, uh, the, the people who harvest stuff, they'll leave behind, uh, the, the, the thief will leave behind stuff in the house, he's only going to take out what he wants, and then the, the, the harvester is going to leave behind stuff for the poor or whatnot, and uh, what he wants, and, uh, but God's not going to do that with Edom. He's going to clean them out, we would say. And so then it says in verse 7, and now we have the treachery of their allies described for us in verse 7. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Their intelligence will not detect it. They were known as the, the great um, wise men of the world, Edom. Then it says in verse 8, in that day declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified. And Teman was a geographical location in Edom. So your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So the, the charges are against Edom are listed in verses 10 through 14. And so they betrayed their blood relatives, as we pointed out. This book is all about God dealing out retribution against the nation of Edom for joining Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar and their coalition of armies to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah and other nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th century B.C. They were blood relatives, uh, these, the kingdom of Judah. Their progenitor was Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had his name changed by God to Israel. Esau was his twin brother, and his descendants were the Edomites. We know a lot about Edom from the book of Genesis, in particular like Genesis chapter 36, which gives the genealogies of the kings and various chiefs that descended from this man. And so uh, one branch of the Arab, uh, Arabs, uh, another, he was one of the branch of the, uh, the Arabs that we saw. So now we have this going on. God's upset with the, the nation of uh, Edom for doing this, betraying their blood relatives and joining Babylon in sacking Jerusalem and the temple and, deport, and, and, and murdering the people. And so this is the charges in verses 10 through 14 are listed. And we have the, the description of the judgment against that, that God has given a, a decree to, for the nations of the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world to destroy Edom. And why to, is he going to do that? Verses 10 to 14 list the charges. You see this in all the prophetic writings, the Old Testament. God, when he says he's going to give deal out retribution, judgment, he always lists the charges against the nation. Read the book of Jeremiah sometime. There's charges against Edom. There's charges against Babylon. There's charges in all these nations, and they all were destroyed. One evil, as we pointed out, God uses one evil nation to destroy another evil nation. God, in his wisdom, lets evil destroy itself. And Satan knows this, and Satan, well, he doesn't consider himself evil. He thinks it's a legitimate rival kingdom, but that's what God does. So then we have verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. 
Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, talking about Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. So in other words, these nations led by Babylon that destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, God is going to destroy them, which says that they're evil themselves. And so God just let uh, these nations led by Babylon to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah, though he left the remnant God did of the nation because he's going to bring her back 70 years later. But again, he used an evil nation to discipline the southern kingdom of Judah. But those nations that were used by God to discipline them, they would all be destroyed themselves. And that's called the righteous and justice of God. Then we have a prophetic section to finish off the book, verses 17 through uh, 21, which basically says is, is the, the destruction of Edom and these nations uh, during the days of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and Edom. Those destruction of those nations serve as the pattern for how God's going to deal with the nations in the future. Future to the rapture, the resurrection of the church. Remember, once the church is removed, then we can have the day of the Lord. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12 teaches us that. We're removed, and then we have the 70th week of Daniel, where God pours out those seven seal trumpet and bold judgments in Revelation 6 through 18 upon a Christ rejecting world that's under the wrath of God. Many people get saved. Well, Jew and Gentile, many will get saved and they'll die for their faith in Jesus, but the world is going to, is in for the greatest war of all time, the, the war to end all wars. They'd been talking, they thought World War I would do that, World War II would do that. Hey, we could still have another world war before the, the tribulation, the, uh, the Armageddon campaign. There's nothing in the Word of God that says that that can't take place, but I think it's pretty close uh, because we have now Israel back in the land, which is significant, and we also have Europe is ready to be the United States of Europe under Antichrist. Uh, and that's so there's the states with the European common market, they've organized. So there's a lot of things going on that I can see happening. What's interesting is Russia, you know, it's going to be Russia, th chapter, uh, chapter 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel talks about Russia leading a coalition of nations against Israel and God himself destroying it. And the timing of that invasion, uh, some believe it's uh, before the rapture, some believe it's during, in the first three and a half years of the 70th week, some say it's right in the middle of the 70th week. There's really a lot of conjecture about that, but it's coming, it's yet future. And so it's kind of interesting, I wonder what God's doing with Russia right now because they're making a mess getting bogged down in Ukraine. So we'll see what God has planned for them. So maybe it's just, maybe God's just allowing this to happen so he can get rid of Putin and whatever and have something else. I don't know what God's doing, but we'll see. So verse 17 says, but on Mount Zion will be a deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. And Joseph would be uh, talking about um, the uh, the southern king of uh, uh, Jacob would be um, the, uh, the the southern king of Judah. Joseph would be a de definition or a as a term that was used for the northern kingdom. So in other words, he's saying they're going to be united here. So he says Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. What's interesting in the future, uh, just like Israel. Well, for 2,000 years wasn't a nation, but in 1948 they became a nation again. So Edom, we can see from Daniel chapter 11, I showed you in the introduction of this book, Edom will once again be a nation. And they, their geographical location is where Jordan is today, as I pointed out. So then it says in verse 19, people from the Degev will, uh, will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills 
will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, and the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. The Negev is an area that stretches south of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean coast, uh, 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 drifting all the way down toward Egypt. Then it says in verse 21, deliverers will go up to Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. He's talking about the millennial reign. So all these verses here that he just described for us uh, in verses 19 through 21 is it actually a description, a little bit of a description of the millennial reign of Christ. And, and we'll be talking a lot about the millennial reign of Christ when we get to those verses. So our verse today in the first session, as I said before, is verse 8. And that day it says, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding, against a rhetorical question demanding a positive response, emphatic positive response? Yes, I'm going to. So it's another way of saying, you could say it in a uh, declarative statement. I will emphatically destroy the wise men of Edom. So we see here, if you can look at my translation on the board of verse 8, during this particular period of time, the judgment of Edom declares the Lord, will I not absolutely cause the wise men from Edom, specifically the advisors, to be killed from Esau's mountain? So when he talks about on that day, that refers to the period of time in which the Lord will use pagan. Gentile nations in the Mediterranean Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th century BC to destroy the nation of Edom. Now, if you look back to verses 15 and 16, it's the day of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. The day of the Lord, we think about the day of the Lord in Scripture, and we'll do a study on this on a Wednesday night class, and we'll do a big series on it. And, uh, but the, the day of the Lord is very interesting. You, there's a, there have been day of the Lords in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled, and this is one of them. Again, this is another, if you want to talk about the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible, that it's a divine book, not just a human book. Go to this prophecy, the first 16 verses of Obadiah have been fulfilled in history. Fulfilled in history. And so uh, we see that the day of the Lord, you see it in the Old Testament and you see it talked about in the future. Now the day of the Lord that Paul talks about in, in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians, like 2 Thessalonians 5 or 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's the, what we call the eschatological day of the Lord. That's the day of the Lord that's future to the rapture, that's triggered by the rapture and talks about the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, the second advent of Christ. That's the future day of the Lord. There's also a day of the Lord talking about the creation of new heavens and new earth that Peter talks about in 2 Peter. And so there's the day of the Lord with the second advent of Christ, and also the millennial reign of Christ that follows the second advent. But there's been day of the Lords that have been fulfilled in history, and this is one of them. This is a day of the Lord prophecy. We know that from verses 15 and 16 of this book, which correspond, to are talking about this period in which God is judging the nation of Edom. So there's a day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, a day of God's wrath that was exercised in the 6th century B.C. against the kingdom of Edom, and which tells us that God judges the nations. He rules the nations. They're accountable to, to God, all the nations. And Satan, who's the God of this world, is accountable to him. And God is going to have, he has a plan to establish his rule on the earth. Right now, the devil is temporarily, temporarily the authority, but again, as I've been pointing out, the church and Christ, the head, will be the new government on this earth, the world government, and you and I, uh, some of us who are overcomers of Revelation 2 and 3, 
we'll be uh, rulers over some of the nations of the cities and the nations of the earth uh, during the millennial reign of Christ. So as I pointed out, which is very encouraging, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, there's equal privilege and equal opportunity to execute the plan of God. So you could be a housewife who was a great wife to her, her husband and raised her children in a godly fashion, went to church, was a good student with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that God gave her, and she could be a great ruler in the millennial kingdom. So we see here that on that day refers to the period of time in which the Lord will ra- uh, use pagan Gentile nations in the Mediterranean Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th century BC to destroy the nation of Edom. And it is referring to the period of time in which God will judge Edom because it was pointing back, this phrase is pointing back to the first seven verses, which not only assert that God will judge Edom, but also how he's going to do this. Not only is God saying, I'm going to judge you, Edom, but I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. And he's going to attack the very, uh, the very fabric of Edomite society from the leadership, wise men, to the military, to the citizens. It's going to be a total breakdown in the nation. He's just going to dismantle the nations. And that's how God does it. If you look back at history, you know, eventually Babylon was beat by Medo-Persia. They were, fought, they, were, they were corrupt from inside, and it started from the top down, and it trickled down to the people, and the people suffered. So this could be, the, this is definitely the way I think that our nation is headed. Uh, we're, we're under the, we're just like any other nation. We do the same thing many nations do. Have we done some good things? Yes, of course we have. Are we doing some good things? Yes. Uh, we, in fact, the greatest concentration of Christians in the world is here in America still. Believe it or not, and there's still a remnant of pivot of faithful believers that, like, that care about the Word of God, that are putting it into practice in their life, and they're probably the reason why this country has been destroyed by God. And he, we're probably the reason why he's going to keep us around for a little bit longer, because uh, he uh, uh, he's got us to, uh, to, uh, as the salt of the earth. However, we could be just like Daniel's generation. Uh, he could judge our nation, and, uh, and uh, we, we'll be like... Uh, suffering by association like Jeremiah and Daniel did. No matter what happens, God's with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And, you know, sometimes when you go through adversity, the great, the great leaders, uh, the great uh, kings, uh, the great uh, men of women of faith, they were around times of great apostasy and great adversity. Like Noah, when he was, him and his family were the only believers in the face of the earth. When you had demonic activity blatantly out in the open. So, uh, you know, adversity is an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual life and that you can have peace and joy in the face of tremendous adversity. You can fly like, e- like an eagle above uh, your circumstances because you have a great mental attitude that helps you understand that God's got a purpose and he's trying to conform you into the image of his son through the undeserved suffering that you're going to through. Now, this rhetorical question... Will I not on that day destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? It's another rhetorical question which demands another emphatic affirmation. It emphatically is asserting that the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, will cause the wise men from Edom who were advisors to be destroyed, annihilated. And so we see that the, uh, the Net Bible has a great quote in there. The Net Bible is one of the great translations... One of the reasons why I definitely recommend it for everybody, especially you guys who are all serious students of the Word of God here, because the Net Bible's got unbelievable notes. 
They're just good for lay people, scholars, pastors. The Net Bible is a fantastic translation, too. I know some of the people, I know one particular guy who's served as the big edit, editor for, for it. I, I, I've, I've, I've you know, messaged back and forth with a guy. I don't know him personally, like I had dinner with him yet. But he's, Dan Wallace is a great, great scholar. But he was uh, presided over the, this uh, making of the Net Bible. They just had an updated version. But the notes are fantastic and the maps are fantastic as well. You'll really learn a lot about your Bible. And, and let, sometimes I like to quote from these notes. And they have a great, uh, great quote here, a great note on this passage. They say the following, talking about the, uh, the wise men. This undoubtedly refers, the wise men, to members of the royal court who offered political and military advice to the Edomite kings. In the ancient Near East, such men of wisdom were often associated with divination and occult practices. And he give, they give uh, Isaiah 3, 3, 47, 47, 10, and 13 as documentation. And may I interject something? Uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel, uh, he, was, uh, he was called in because these men involved in divination and the occult practices couldn't uh, identify for Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed. <laughs> he said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar doubted those guys to start with, and, which is kind of interesting. And so he, he gave the order to, to kill all these men in his court because they couldn't tell him what his dream was. And they're saying, only the gods could tell you what you were dreaming. Basically, read my mind is what he was saying. And so they couldn't do it. So Daniel comes in, okay, what's going on? Because he was a part, considered part of the wise men. He was trained to be a part of that court. He was involved in cult practices and divination, he was, but he was involved in this, this court. And so he would have been, and him and his friends would have been executed. So he goes to God, this is in Daniel chapter 2, hey, what's the, asking God in prayer, what's Nebuchadnezzar's dream and what's the interpretation? God gave it to him. And Nebuchadnezzar fell down from his throne and, and, and bowed down to Daniel because he gave it to him in perfect accuracy and he gave him the interpretation which was this, the first step of him maybe even being a believer at that point in the God of Israel because he knew Daniel belonged to the worship of Yahweh in the ancient world. So the Net Bible goes on to say about these wise men, the Edomites were also renowned, as I pointed out to you, in the, nature, in the ancient Near East as a center of traditional sagacity and wisdom. Perhaps that is referred to here. Uh, the... Um, the uh, Webster's gives a, a good uh, um, translation of, or inter um, definition of being sagacious. It, uh, it means to perceive keenly. It, it means to have a keen, be having a keen sense of perception, a keen, far-sighted penetration and judgment caused by or indicating acute discernment. So these wise men were characterized by this. They were very wise. They were the, basically uh, what you would call the cabinet of the Edomite rulers. And what's interesting, they used the occult and they used divination to, for foreign policy, amazingly. And I'm sure that's been going on ever since that time. It still goes on today that world rulers are using occult practices and divination, we would call it. And, uh, you know, uh, trying to make contact with the dead and all this kind of garbage to, to set policy in their nation. Now, thank God, the founding fathers, they have decide, designed executive, judicial, legislative branches. So if you get a crazy guy in the White House, he can be held in check. That's what the checks and balances are for. And we got a military, and we got intelligence, and we got all kinds of the State Department, we got all the kinds of the FBI, CIA. So, uh, you know, one guy goes off on a, on, on a tangent and goes crazy, 
We got a lot of people to hold them accountable, thank God, where our former government is. So we see that it was very amazing that they did this, that they, in the ancient world, we, we, in our day and age, uh, we, you know, because we came out of, um, uh, I'm not gonna say the Reformation, but when we came out of um, uh, the Enlightenment, we became sec the world became more like secular humanists. And so we, we've, we've, we lean on scientists and people like that in our day and age, uh, we, you know, we, 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 we lean on people that come out of, you know, college and universities around the world, like Oxford or Harvard or Yale or whatnot. And, you know, we lean on those people, okay? And so we don't lean on God. We don't lean on the Bible uh, to guide us or godly men to guide us many, any time. Any, that I know of in, in, our, in our government, but we, this is what goes on. So we have a, a world that's governing, uh, we have a world of, of rulers that are governing the world according to the standards of the devil's world. And by the, by, I mean that, by that, for today, in our day and age, we don't, again, we don't have those involved in occult practices and divination as we used to. I'm sure they still exist in other nations, but uh, I've even heard talk about Putin was involved in that. I don't know. But uh, that could be just propaganda. But, you know, to, you know, we get people who come out of the colleges and universities and uh, in America, and eventually they end up being a part of our government in some form or fashion. And you look at what's going on in the colleges and universities. Let's take Harvard University, for instance, and Yale. They actually were designed to teach the original, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the biblical languages to English-speaking men. They were actually supposed to be some place that promoted the Bible, the teaching of the Bible. Now what are they? They're the bastion of secular humanism. And who's behind the secular humanism? The devil. And so uh, this is another reason why we, we're told by God to pray. The Holy Spirit wants us to pray, First Timothy 2, 1 through 7, as I mentioned, to pray for our leaders and that they would be exposed to the gospel, whether it's for their salvation as an unbeliever or if they believe is an apostasy, to show them they need to repent and confess their sins. Or we might, we, I know we have uh, people in our government and military that are Christians, that, that are positive, then we need to pray for them that they might make a big impact, like Daniel and his friends did on dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, that President Biden in, our, in his cabinet would be exposed to godly people with go, uh, godly wisdom. That's what we need. Uh, that's what we need them to be exposed to. And we don't want them to be uh, living, uh, go governing this country according to ungodly principles. So we see when he says, if you look at Obadiah verse 8 again, it says, In that day declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Now when he says declares the Lord, that emphasizes that the Lord is the author of this declaration in Obadiah verse 8. It predicts that he will certainly cause the wise men from Edom and specifically their political and military advisors to be killed. So Obadiah 8 contains another prophetic declaration pertaining to the God of Israel's intention to judge the nation of Edom. Now this prophetic declaration is implied from a rhetorical question as we can see. And so this rhetorical question is demanding an emphatic positive response and it functions as an emphatic affirmation which I could translate for you as, I will certainly cause the wise men from Edom, specifically their advisors and uh, specifically their advisors, political and military, to be killed off or um, executed as criminals from Esau's, uh, Esau's mountains. 
I said executed as criminals because the verb there is quite interesting. It talks about executing someone as a criminal. God's treating the Edomites as criminals, criminal behavior for the way they treated their blood relatives, the kingdom of Judah. So these wise men, and who were their advisors, refers to the members of the royal court who offered up political and military advice to the Edomite kings. Jeremiah 49.7 also speaks about them as well. D.W. Baker, another commentator on the book of Obadiah, he has the following comment. He says, the wise men are important figures in the court and society providing sage intellectual insight or good sense as well as practical skill, end of quote. One of the things you see lacking in our country today, because we have the woke thing and the, the, the you know, secular humanism, is we've got all kinds of, we don't have any common sense with some people. You talk to some people and you go, where's the common sense in that behavior? Or that decision doesn't make any sense. So pray that God would bring some common sense to our leaders, or whether they, that they have it themselves, that they would come to the forefront, those who have common sense. I love reading history. Uh, obviously, when you study the Bible, you have to. But I like reading also modern history and stuff. And it's kind of interesting uh, when you see um, some great men of history and they're exposed to somebody who was just a guy who had, was not an intellectual person, but he just had common sense and could go up to a, be asked advice about how to do something. I remember uh, when I worked for an NEC dealer, NEC used to be big, and back in Massachusetts, and I worked, I worked for two presidents of two business, uh, two companies, and the name of the company was Penguin Computers, it was a, it was a uh, computer dealer, and it was really the largest NEC dealer in New England, but it was kind of funny, because when I started working with this guy, I was like kind of like, like doing accounting work. You know, I did ARAP and all that, and then eventually he wanted me to make decisions, the boss, to, um, to make uh, credit decisions on these corporations, different companies and stuff, set of credit limits. I didn't, I didn't go to college for it, you know. I was, you know so, they, so I remember him coming up and asking you know, me advice on different things, business things. And uh, I was like, why are you asking me? You should ask, you know, ask somebody else, because you know, I didn't, I didn't, he was from, he graduated from Dartmouth, he was brilliant and everything, and I go, why are you asking me? He goes, you got common sense, you got street lights, like, well, thank you, that's very good. I'm going to go tell my mother and my father that now, my brothers and sisters, they will never believe that, you know? So some of them probably think, you're out of your mind, because, you know, when I went to Iowa for 18, you know, I went to Iowa, they're like, you're out of your mind. Even the people in the church, you got to, you never even met those people, you, you met them once, and so now they offer you the job, you're going to go there. Well, sometimes when you walk in faith, you're going to look like you're a nut, you know? But, you know, I knew it was God's will, and I went. So, but back to the thing, it's like, so people are looking for common sense. And so I'm sure some of you, I, I'd like to talk to some of you and what you're doing, because a lot of you guys do a lot of interesting things. In fact, everybody in this place seems to be doing something interesting. But you might have, a, as we talk about, an impact on your boss or you, who's over you or people around you and known for your common sense, which actually is divine wisdom, as we're going to talk about. Wisdom that's from the word of God. Wisdom is how to do things the proper way, the way God wants things done, the way God has designed things to done. So there's a wisdom in all kinds of areas, whether it's engineering or, you know, uh, baking, <laughs> whatever it is, there's a wisdom in everything and a right way to do things. So 
we have another quote here. Charles Feinberg, another great scholar from the past, he says the following. Uh, he writes that because of its communication with Babylon and Egypt, and because of the information gleaned through the caravans going to and from Europe and India and Edom had gained an invaluable reputation for wisdom. So they were in the caravan routes. And so they would pick up all kinds of ideas around, from around the world, which gave them tremendous insight and just, uh, from around the world. Because they had all these people coming from India and the travel caravans, the caravans, Babylon, Egypt, everywhere. So the Edomites, because they were, they were right in the thick of this thing, it gave them a lot of wisdom because they, they talked to people from around the world. Isn't it kind of interesting? Isn't Huntsville kind of like a, pl a place where everybody comes? You know, the mil military's down here, FBI's down here, everybody's down here. And uh, so, and I, I remember the first month I was here, I'd go to a Starbucks and, and there was people from talking Chinese and Korean and, and it was like a melting pot. It was kind of like Massachusetts where I was from. There's a melting pot of people from all around the world, from every language, uh, every nation, ethnicity, language group, religion, you name it, they were there. And it's kind of, I like that about Huntsville. And so it, uh, it, it, it gives the city, but, but that, for that being the case, it gives the city uh, a wisdom, uh, you know, uh, it uh, is, uh, it gives it wisdom because they, it, they're being absorbed, the people are being abs absorbing this stuff that's coming from around the world. And not just, the, I'm not talking about the bad stuff, but the good stuff that each nation and language and ethnicity brings. So, interesting. Interestingly, Job's, remember the book of Job? Job had a friend named Eliphaz. You know what he was? He was a Temanite. He came from Edom. And Warren Worsby, he has the following quote. He's like in his 90s now. He says, the people of the East were known for their wisdom, and this included the Edomites. Located as they were on the great trade routes, the leaders of Edom could get news and views from many nations. Job's friend, Eliphaz, as I pointed out to you, was from Teman in Edom. Without wisdom, the leaders of Edom couldn't make the right decisions, and the result would be confusion. So, the wisdom of the Edomite wise men, who were military and political advisors for the nation, was inferior to God's wisdom, though. The nations of the earth, as I said before today, they have their wisdom you know, from the colleges and universities of America and around the world. And a lot of the wisdom is without God, without thinking of God. It, they, they, it's a wisdom that they have that's excluding God. And with, if you exclude God, your wisdom has been tainted. What, what wisdom do you really have if you exclude God? Because without God, there is nothing. You know, for every, you know, this is the time, matter, space continuum, all of us, Every person, we're individuals, but yet we're the same, but we're individuals. Uh, we're different from each other. Uh, we have different fingerprints. We, we're, we're so fearfully and wonderfully made. It demands a creator. The whole time, matter, space, continuum, us, human beings, everything is just overwhelmingly pointing to a creator. And yet we live in a world that says, no, there's no God. And we have colleges and universities that once were the bastion of truth, like Harvard and Yale, no longer say that. They without, they're void of the truth. And with your, when you're devoid of the truth, you don't have any godly wisdom. Because truth is, wisdom is based upon God's truth. So the wisdom of the Edomite wise men, who were military and political advisors for the nation, 
was inferior to God's wisdom. God's going to kill them off, he says. You kill off the wise men, then the people underneath underneath their command, what are they going to do? It's going to be a total collapse of the nation by doing this. So the wisdom, I want to spend the rest of the... the, uh, this first session talking about the wisdom of God. So we see the, the Edomite wise men, their political and military advisors, their wisdom was inferior to God's wisdom, which you and I have. The wisdom in the world today is inferior to the wisdom of God. Why? Because God's wisdom is based upon his omniscience and his unique ability to devise a perfect plan to accomplish his goal to glorify himself. God's wisdom speaks of his ability to perfectly execute his plan of salvation and as a result, bring glory to himself. The wisdom of God was expressed, is expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was, the son of God became a human being. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead on the third day. That looks like insanity to the world. He was a dead Jew and you're telling me he rose from the dead that flies in the face of everything I've been taught, all the wisdom I've taught, and God becoming a human being and dying such an ignominious death as crucifixion in the ancient world? How is that wisdom? Oh, it's wisdom, all right. It's the wisdom of God that's beyond human comprehension. So the wisdom of God is expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which presents God's provision of eternal salvation for the entire human race through the death and resurrection of his Son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, Paul, the apostle, condemns the wisdom of the the cosmic system of Satan, which I've been talking about. And he teaches the wisdom of God, as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is superior, and has made foolish the wisdom of the cosmic system of Satan. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 18 through 31, Paul attacks the self-confidence of the Greeks, who boast of their human wisdom, which is cosmic viewpoint. Now, I want you to, you don't have to hold your place, go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. One of the great chapters in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1.18. I love this chapter. This is a great chapter. Because, you know, it's like, one of the reasons why I like it is you and I, who love the Word of God, we live in a world now, in a country in particular, we're looked at as a bunch of knuckleheads. These people, I can't believe, they actually believe that garbage about Jesus and the pie in the sky, he's going to come back and the rapture. We're just ridiculed everywhere. Do you see anything on television that speaks well of us? I always go to my dad who likes, he watches too much television. He's a television junkie and has been since I've known him. I said, you ever notice? I just said, let's just talk about politics. Do you know all those stations you're watching? They're all liberal in their politics. Whether you like it or not, it's like, they are. But you have a few stations that are conservative. Okay, so, so do they ever say anything good about the other side, conservative side? No. Okay, then you go and say, let's talk about the Bible and Jesus. Do you ever see anything that gives a view that's positive toward the Bible or Jesus? No. 
Show me on television where they're, television where they're doing that. In fact, it's just quite to the contrary. It's to demean Christianity, to demean the Bible. And as we've been talking about in our canonicity series, we talked about people making assertions about the Bible that are not based on fact at all. They just make out these assertions that have been refuted a million times over, and the Bible has tremendous... No other book of ancient antiquity has as, as much manuscript, manuscript attestation as the New Testament. And, and yet, we don't think twice about the stories from Herodotus about, or um, you know, uh, the different uh, ancient authors that uh, talk about Gaius Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. We don't question their, their veracity, and yet their man manuscript attestation can't even go up to, if you stacked it up, wouldn't go up to my kneecap. Yet the Bible is, we got over 5,000 copies of the New Testament just in Greek alone. We're not talking about Latin and Coptic and all these other languages. They would make it 20,000. These people won't tell you about that. Well, we, you got so many variants in the New Testament. There's all kinds of things. That's because we have so many manuscripts. And they didn't have copy machines back then. Yeah, we know what our New Testament says. We, are, get the, we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Bible. And certain books did, didn't get bumped out because of Constantine giving a decree. Or, you know, certain wing of Christianity was more powerful than the others, who we call Orthodox, us. And we got our books in, and the Gnostics didn't get theirs. That's not based upon fact at all. If you study that series in canonicity with me, you would see that this is a bunch of garbage that's going on. So you and I are ridiculed, with our views are slandered, our Bible is slandered, the mind of thinking of Christ. This is the world we live in. We're laughed at. It's no different than in the days of Paul. The Greeks, they laughed at it. The death and resurrection. The Jews, they couldn't see their Messiah crucified. Look at Paul says, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, the non-Christian. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're experiencing our salvation, present tense. How do we experience our salvation, our deliverance from sin and Satan? Obeying God's word. Considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because Paul says in Romans 6, we are died with Christ and we're raised with Christ. I now look at myself as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ because that's how God looks at me. So I'm experiencing my salvation when I'm obeying God's word. That deliverance from sin and Satan, this cosmic system. We're delivered when we, when we put the word of God, the wisdom of God, into practice. What's going to happen is we're going to experience deliverance from the lies of Satan's cosmic system that the world is saturated with and the minds of people are saturated with. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, the power to experience victory over sin and Satan, power to experience victory over those lies that are everywhere. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He did that to the Edomites in the past, in the 6th century B.C. He's going to do it right up to our present day and into the future. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise of this world. The intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. This is God's message to the nations. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. How so? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world to its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, you and I. Choose to me in signs, and Jesus gave it to them. The greatest sign, the resurrection. The sign of Jonah, right? And Greeks, the non-Christian, the non-Jew, look for wisdom. Not the wisdom of God. They look for the wisdom of Sophocles, Aristotle, okay? And Socrates. They're looking for that. Or who's the big guy? Who's the big atheist out there? The ESA? Um, uh, help me out. Who's that guy? Who's he's, he's, got, he's got a disability. What's his name? Hawkins. The wisdom of Hawkins. And, and who was that other guy that used to back when I was like Sagan and all those guys, all those atheists. <laughs> he, he laughs at those people. I pity those people. They're still alive. I want to give them the gospel. They might not accept it, but hey, you never know. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews because the Jews didn't want to see a, a crucified Messiah. But it was in the Old Testament scriptures if they wanted to see it. They refused to look at it. They cherry-picked. And the foolishness to the Gentiles, non-Christian, a non-Jew, but to those whom God has called, you and I, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God personified. And we're in union with him. God looks at us as he looks at his son, the wisdom of God incarnate. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I love that. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. I love to do this for myself. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Amen there. Not many were influential. Amen there. Not many were noble birth. Come in. I'm a mutt. I'm a mutt. I'm a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Irish, German, Italian. My, my ancestors in Europe, in Sweden, my father's side, they were drinking blood out of a human skull. That's how whacked out they were. They are, I don't have noble birth. I love those people who say, believe in reincarnation. They always come from somebody who was like, I, I descended from Napoleon. Yeah, that, just, that, that looks like you because you're so short. You, you probably did come descend from Napoleon. You know, I, I mean, people are always saying, I got Julius Caesar. How would you know? You don't know. Please. They can't go that far back. Look at verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world, that's you and me, to shame the wise of this world. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We're weak. Who are we? Most of us don't have any kind of political we don't. I don't know too many people have political power in here or have any kind of major, major influence on the decision-making in this country. I mean, I don't even know, who, when, we, when, they, when they have people run for president, I don't even know who these people are half the time. And the propaganda is put out, I don't know what they, really their views are, because when they get into office, they, they don't do what they say they're going to do, right? Who knows, okay? But we're weak. We don't have any, those, those guys don't have, they're not calling up, hey Pastor, hey, Pastor Bill, can you tell me what to do about Putin? Hey, let me tell you, hold on. Hey, Joe, where is he? I need Joe, I need a general around here. To help me out. What should I say to him? I don't know. <laughs> but that's kind of, they don't do that. They're not calling us up. They're not calling you up. They're not calling me up. Because we're weak. We're insignificant. Who are we? Then look at verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world. And that's the wisdom of God. He did this. 
He was wise to do this. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, Jesus has. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your knowledge of him and his ways. Because if you know his ways through study of Bible doctrine, you have wisdom. Wisdom is in God's eyes, is knowledge of him and his ways and the ability to apply it accurately. Look, he says, in, so then he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the wisdom of God. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling, my message and my preaching... We're not with wise, according to the world, and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a, a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. I love this. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit in the word of God. Bible doctrine. The spirit searches all things even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, the non-Christian, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. They can't understand the things of God in the Bible because they don't have the spirit yet. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? No one, but we, the Christian, has the mind of Christ. In Colossians 2.3, Paul taught, God's wisdom resides in the mind and thinking of Christ. In Colossians 3.16, he taught the believers in, Col in, in the Colossians, who he never met before, by the way. He teaches that the believer acquires the wisdom of God by letting the word of Christ richly dwell in their soul. Quickly, we'll close. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Please. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 16. Colossians 3, 16. I talked about last week when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a great man. I, wanted something. I said, you know what? In whose eyes? When I became a Christian, I got into doctrine and said, eh, you don't want to be a great man in the people's eyes because they crucified the greatest of all time, Jesus. You want to be great in God's eyes, right? So, 
I said, that's okay. Now, how do I do that? Get the Word of God in your head. Put it into practice. Get immersed in it. Saturate your mind with it. Pray. Prayerfully study the Word of God. Pray that God will show you how to apply these things accurately. You know, the most dangerous person is a person who's got some doctrine in their soul. They don't know how to apply it. They misapply it, and they just cause all kinds of problems. I call those the spiritual teenagers. Like teenagers, they have a little information, a little wisdom like I had with my, my dad, and he'd say, oh, great, I, 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 I become stupid now that you're 16 years old. I used to be wise in your eyes. Now I'm stupid. Okay, we got all that. We, we used to do that. We have kids like that and grandchildren, right? And we used to be like that, right? Well, when you learn the Word of God and you, learn, and you ask God to teach you how to apply it, you're really going to make an impact, which we're trying to do, right, as individuals and as a corporate unit. Look at Paul says to the Colossians, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And that wisdom is a wisdom that's absolute. The world all there can be translated absolute. What do you mean? God's wisdom. He wants you to, he wants you to encourage and teach each other, he says, with God's wisdom, which is found in his word. And you do this, listen to this, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Think about this. When you're filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, the results are the same as letting the word of Christ richly dwell in your soul. Why? Because the Spirit inspired the Scriptures and speaks to us through the Scriptures. So notice music. That's why when I, I love the Bert, you know, he, bring, he chooses doctrinal songs. He, 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 he takes out verses that are not doctrinally sound and he sings the ones that have, that have sound doctrine. And I love that because I've always tried, I've taught in my churches and as when I write my own music, I want my lyrics to be able to teach you know, they have doctrinal content. They're not like, I love you, Jesus, 50 million times. I mean, I love a good hook, okay? They call that, the, you know, the cat. I like a good hook, and it's good. But you've got to have some verses with some content if you're going to do that. If you're going to have a hook like, you know, I love you, Jesus, a million times, okay? Have some content. You've got to know your Bible. You can teach. I like to teach with music just like I do with my mouth or writing. I mean, that's what Paul did. You know, that's what the early church did. They were a singing church, just like the Jewish people were singing people. They were musical people. So, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Uh, one more passage, James. I promise it'll be the last one. Because some of you are probably sitting in that chair, he's like, my back's killing me, and Pastor Bill won't shut up. I'm going to shut up soon. <clears throat> As soon as God, I finish what God wants me to say. Look at this, James 3.17. James 3.17. What does wisdom look like? But the wisdom that comes from heaven, God, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good and good fruit, and partial and sincere. It's describing Christ-like characteristics in the believer. The wisdom of God is, is knowledge of God's word applied in our lives, which manifests itself in our words and our actions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word and talking about, we pray the word, the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work talking about our wisdom that we receive from you, Father, the wisdom of God, and it's the Spirit gave us through the teaching of the word of God. And we just pray you would help us to become wiser every day by learning and putting into practice accurately 
your word and prayerfully praying on the word of God as we study it so we can gain the proper application so we can manifest your wisdom in our lives, uh, not only with each other, but also with, in front of those who are part of a lost and dying world that are in, are in need of the wisdom, your wisdom, Father. So we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.